Hey everyone, Jeff here, and thank you for joining me on the Highway One podcast. The podcast where we meet Canadian musicians, some you've heard of, and some I hope you'll want to hear more about. Where we discuss their music, their scene, their city, the venues they've played, and the places they've been along Canada's own TransCan Highway. In this edition of the podcast, episode number six, I speak to one of Canada's pioneers of heavy rock, Brian Vollmer of Helix. It's not every day I get to speak to a legend in Canadian hard rock, and today I did. Brian Vollmer has been touring Canada and recording with Helix since the mid-70s. He's seen it all. Major label deals, music on the radio, videos on television. He's probably forgotten more about touring Canada, hell, he's probably forgotten more about being broken down at the side of the road while touring Canada than most bands will ever know. In this episode of the Highway One Podcast, Brian shares his experiences touring along with some of his thoughts for the modern road. Without further delay, give me an R. Yes, Brian? Yes, it is. It's Jeff calling from the Highway One Podcast. How are you? Good. I can hardly hear you. It sounds like you're way off in the distance. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. I'm going to probably, I'm guessing it's probably my microphones. Is this a bit better? Is this a bit better? Uh, Not really. (laughs) (laughs) You still there? Yep. All right. I'm very sorry about that. But hey, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. It's truly a pleasure. You know, uh, I'm, as they say, a long-time listener, first-time caller, starting off when I was probably 13 or 14, just getting into heavy music and uh, heavy metal love, which I understand is a song you wrote about Joan Jett. Yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, if ever you should be writing a song about, you know, pretty girls who like heavy music, let alone can play it, that song might as well be about a unicorn. Um... To start off, you know, I've been posting on social media. I'm on a quest to find out who has the record for most tours across Canada. Now, some of the answers, some of the answers have been pretty obvious. You know, I've received like Stompin' Tom, The Tragically Hip, Rush, Kim Mitchell. Less obvious would be Joe Shithead of DOA. But for the record, my money is on you guys. So spanning a career that started in 1974, how many times do you think you've crossed Canada? Oh, geez, I've lost track, but uh, where we have it over those other bands, a lot of those bands never ever toured coast to coast through the bars. We had we had already done, uh, God, four or five tours uh, across the country in the, uh, in the bars. We did um, Northern Ontario like 20 times, I bet you, before we even got signed. Uh, we did at least uh, four or five East Coast tours at least once a year. Uh, so, you know, we started in about 1977. We didn't get signed till, in capital till 1983. So, you know, do the math. We went out west uh, many, many times. Right. So was touring Canada then something indie bands aspired to do back in, in, in when you guys were just starting out? to go out and play and the uh, circuit was the way you got exposure and uh, eventually the way you got signed to record labels back then and uh, you went out and um, you made shit money and uh, you uh, toured from coast to coast and you hardly ever went home and uh, your family became distant memories and a lot of people quit the band and a few stalwarts uh, hung in there like me and Brent and Paul and the rest of them and um, 
you know, the rest is history. But, uh, you know, everybody had to go out in the circuit. Uh, a lot of the Toronto bands didn't. As a result, I think they ended up being very uh, myoptic and, uh, when they wrote their songs. And, you know, we, we got an eclectic look at the country. We went out. We, uh, you know, had to go over in Moose Jar or, uh, just the same as we went over and, uh, you know, uh, down at the Gasworks and Young Street. So yeah. we, I think we were a much more rounded band because of all that uh, touring. All the hard work that you had done. Yeah. Well, well, it was hard work, but it was also fun. You know, you have to love the life. Um, if you don't love the life, you'll never survive it. Uh, it's too difficult. But we, we love touring, and uh, we love going back home and, and basically bragging to our friends, you know, the, the, the places we'd been to and seen and the experiences we had. And I think a lot of them were very jealous of us. Absolutely. Well, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the email to you, but... Uh, my idea and my inspiration for this podcast was was inspired by my own tour, of course, um, a book that I had read by Dave Bedini called On a Cold Road and a photo that I had actually seen of you guys. Now, you guys were standing on the side of the road and you were next to um, which a school bus, which I assume was your transportation at the time. Um, and I'm guessing it had to have been like late 70s, maybe early 80s. Um, and I have to say, like, that photo struck a chord with me because I suddenly saw you guys not as a band that had songs on the radio and videos on television, but as a band that had one time paid their dues. So I'm wondering if in the early days of the band, when were you guys bringing rock and roll to the youth of rural uh, Canada, or were you guys more hastily packing your van at the end of the night, running for your lives. No, we were bringing rock and roll to the masses. And uh, the thing about Helix that set us apart, actually, from a lot of other bands is the fact that when we chose our cover songs to put in our sets, we chose them from Billboard. In, uh, in other words, we didn't just listen to what was on Canadian radio because Canadian radio uh, essentially used to follow American radio. And uh, because we followed Billboard instead, we were much more... Uh, up to date, we'd be playing, say, um, I don't know, some Aerosmith songs for, for six months before they even got people in Canada were even aware they were out, except, you know, diehard rock followers. And another thing we, we did that I, I didn't think any other bands did was we, we used to actually walk out between the uh, uh, sets and we'd talk to people in the audience and we'd ask them what songs they wanted to hear. And then, if you know, if we got three or four people asking for the same song, we go learn it. Uh, a lot of bands never ever bothered to ask their uh, audience what they actually wanted to hear. They just, you know, followed like sheep and learned whatever was on Canadian radio. Absolutely. Interaction with your fans, getting to know them, being personable goes a long way. Um, well, that was a, a huge part of what... Uh, gave Helix success and uh, still continues to give us success to this day. And uh, I, I wouldn't want it any other way. Personally, I love getting out there and partying with fans and just being friggin' normal. Um, it's one of the things that I love about you guys. Locking yourself in your room and <laughs> turn off the lights. Well, you guys have always been so accessible, it seems to me. I mean, even now, you know, you agreeing to speak to me about this podcast, I, again, like it, it just it goes a long way for your fan base. Um, I'm curious, back in, back in the early days of the band, were, were venues open to you playing live music? Uh, sorry, uh, indie uh, original music? Not 
not at all. Uh, <laughs> back, in, back in the day, they would actually uh, fire you if you came in and said you were doing original music. Uh, the reason we got away with it was because we were so popular on the bar circuit, but we took a much more intelligent and balanced approach to introducing our original material audiences, realizing that uh, you know people weren't going to react to something they were totally unfamiliar with. We made sure that our cover songs were right spot on and that they were going over well. And then we'd bury an original in the middle of the set. And eventually, we ended up burying the third set and we'd be sandwiching uh, our original stuff in the in the second set between the two cover sets. So uh, it wasn't until we went to uh, three original sets that the band faltered and, and uh, you know, we started to lose our audience. It was right before we got signed to Capitol Records. And uh, once again, it it wasn't the um, quality of the material as much as it was the fact that it was unfamiliar with the people in the audience. But as soon as we got signed to Capitol Records, then once again, everything changed. Uh, we ended up going on tour, um, you know, across North America and over to Europe with uh, uh, Kiss, and uh, so it paid off. But it wasn't an easy thing, but it, it was a real birth of fire to introduce our, our original material in that fashion because it made uh, people much more receptive to listening to to it and then the material ultimately had to stand on its own two feet which it did and i imagine it had to also play a, fa a factor in the band like you suddenly know what songs have legs and which ones don't yeah you know you can play stuff in your basement it feels great but you go out and play in front of an audience you immediately know if it has a groove or if people are going to react to the the, the song and um the first time we ever played Rock U, for instance, was at the El Rosa Villa in Columbus, Ohio, where a dime bag girl was shot. And uh, the first time we ever put the song on stage, it, it just uh, went over uh, big time. So we knew we had a winner. Well, Same thing with Heavy Metal Love. Well, that's a song, Heavy Metal Love in particular, that um, I think stands up today. It's, you know, the song itself stands up, the chorus is killer, and there's not too many songwriters who can say that they have a song that, that carries its own weight to this day, years later. And it's a very simple song. I, it's, it's very, very difficult to write a simple song about something that's written about a million times before. And um, I've always viewed Helix as a heavy metal pop band because when you listen back to songs like Heavy Metal Love or even No Rest of the Wicked, Dirty Dog, they're really just a, a pop song, you know, catchy yeah. chorus, and, and they rock out. But we always had a groove uh, to the music, and uh, we were always influenced by the heavier bands like Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, ACDC, um, Alex Harvey, things like that, acts like that. Um, what were some of your favorite venues to play then and now? Well, when we played the bars, uh, my favorite place... Uh, I think I ever played was a ride out here in London, Ontario. It was one of the raunchiest uh, bars I ever played, but it was just a great time. But there were other bars, too, uh, the Alec Arms in Lothbridge, Alberta. Mm -hmm. We used to pack out there from Monday to Saturday, uh, the Beacon in Calgary, um, Outlaws in Vancouver, uh, the gas works down in Young Street, yes. uh, the Hilltop Pub in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Um, geez, then there was the Cap Inn. Uh, just so many bars. That the Norlander in Winnipeg was another great bar. You've played a lot of places that are no no longer around. You mentioned one of them. 
the legendary Gasworks, long since defunct. That was actually one of my my favorite venues in the city. Um, you know, run by bikers, uh, hot chicks in there, rock and roll, good yeah. sound. Um, I understand that you guys, it was, it was um, you played a gig there, and that's how you guys got signed to Capital EMI? Yes, Capital about didn't. Capital uh, was actually one of the last bands. It was between Aquarius and Capital Records. I wish I was going to sign the band. And uh, Capital came out and saw us at the Gasworks, and we played uh, a rip-roaring two sets. The place was packed and rocking, and then they left after the second set. And we realized after they had left that we had uh, Brent had blown his amp. <laughs> but instead of packing it in, we uh, threw up a little practice amp about a square foot big uh and uh we rocked out just as hard in the third set while capital came in through the back door and was uh watching us to see what we'd do and uh they were so impressed by the fact that we didn't just pack it in for the night that they ended up signing the band and that the show must go on and hey all that time and effort you had put in leading up to this i mean imagine it was it was whatever we just roll with it and even when we got signed to a capital, you know, what people don't realize it, but we broke in the United States because we went out and toured in a van. We even slept in the damn van, and that was the worst. We had no <laughs> AC. Uh, it was baking hot. And uh, we toured uh, all through the United States in that van with the U-Haul stuck at the back, and it was just, you know, a terrible way to travel. Uh, and that's how we got ourselves out in the United States. So... I think they saw a glimpse of that when they saw us go back at the Gasworks and, and carry on despite all odds. Uh, they, uh, you know, they probably figured we'd do that the same, you know, take the same attitude with our touring and uh, and uh, getting the album out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure it was it was uh, uncomfortable at the time, but uh, I mean, how can you not look back on that with fond memories? Well, we were just uh, we were groomed a certain way as it, and taught to you know. <laughs> We call it the Bill Sipe School of Rock. That was our uh, manager at the time. And um, we were taught all sorts of performing techniques and uh, just attitude things. You know, you got to have a good attitude to be a musician because it's the most depressing job in the world at times. You know, not every day is the big hit. Not every day is the big tour. A lot of days you're like trying to struggle to pay the bills because you're not making any money and not seeing your family and being cold in a cold room or a hot room or... You know, um, it isn't all the glory and fame that it's cracked up to be. So you have to love the life, which I mentioned before, because that's the only thing that sustains you. Money won't sustain you. Uh, pussy won't sustain you. Uh, and it all won't. the other, uh, stuff that some people get into the business for. Right, right. Well, I, I was remarking at what, uh, when I did my tour way back when that um, I, had, I had developed the ability to be able to sleep whenever I wanted, whenever I wanted, at the, at the blink of an eye, I could be out in like 30 seconds flat. The most tiring thing well, I had ever done. I said that because my wife envies me because I can fall asleep, uh, you know, snapping my fingers. <laughs> so I can fall asleep, right? But um, you have to learn how to do stuff like that because you only have little, uh, um, you know, little, little time here and there to get asleep. Absolutely. Now, do you have favorite spots you look forward to when you tour Canada? And what I'm what I mean by that is like I think of like say Riviera de Lue when you look over the St. Lawrence at the Appalachians or the East Coast and East Coast hospitality or say the Rogers Pass in BC on your way to say Lake Louise. 
I've seen a lot of places in Canada that are just breathtaking, and the United States and Europe for that matter. But um, uh, some of the things I remember is the Cabot Trail, going down the, uh, the bright sunlight and looking out across the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, most definitely going through the Rocky Mountains. See places like Nelson, B.C. and uh, Hope, B.C. Um, and we going across the prairies and watching the uh, Northern Lights. Yeah. Borealis. Amazing. So many, many sites I've seen. Sleeping Giant, Thunder Bay. Yeah, I love that. Um, well, for a lot of Canadian musicians, we're traveling down a road that was made possible by the heroes who've gone before us. And I'm curious if in your travels, you've crossed paths with any of the people, musicians, bands that once inspired you. Well, you know, one of the biggest trailblazers for Canadian rock bands was the Stampeders, and we had the good fortune of playing with the Stampeders in Lloydminster a couple of years ago, and uh, more recently, I think we also played with them in Regina. Uh, nice guys, Rich Dawson, um, but those guys, uh, people don't realize it, but they, they broke down a lot of walls for Canadian bands. They traveled over to Europe. Uh, they had a hit in the United States, I think a number one hit with uh, Sweet City Woman. Yep. So uh, a lot of it's owed to uh, um, the Stampeders, and then next would be Rush. Uh, we always modeled ourselves after Rush. Rush was a band that broke by, by uh, incessantly touring. We used to live in stories uh, about Rush where they'd travel 73 days straight, and they had the same bus for years and years and years, and, and um, we looked up to that. Yeah, well, it's funny. And, and, and you know, later on, we, we played with Rush at uh, Nassau Coliseum in Meadowlands down New York. Uh, I, I was in Alex Lyson, uh, with Alex Lifeson in Countdown to Liquor Day with the Trailer Park Boys movie. So. All good Canadian boys. It's funny you say Regina because... Boys, and I'm actually going out to see Rob Wells Are you? Uh, in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to be doing swearing that with the boys. Oh, very nice. <clears throat> Amazing. Um, true or false? Michael J. Fox, a.k.a. Alex P. Keaton, a.k.a. Marty McFly, once auditioned for the band. Well, you know, I heard that. I heard him on a, on a, on a um, TV show say that he had tried out for Helix, but I don't know. There was a BC Helix, so maybe it was that band, but I don't know. Oh, all right then. I've never been able to contact their management. I get asked all the time. Jim Carrey did back us up, though, and that was at Jokers in Peterborough. Did he really? As a comedian, came out and, and warmed you guys up? Well, it was a comedy club we were playing on. He was the act in there, I think. Uh, that is actually quite comical. Um, you guys, I'm happy to say, are still on the road. Um, is Greg still in the band? Greg's still in the band. In fact, I've been spending all morning advancing uh, our upcoming shows. What's the current lineup consist of? Uh, it's Fritz, Daryl, myself, and then uh, Chris Jolke and Caleb Duck. And you guys have upcoming dates, uh, July 19th uh, in Red Deer. You have July yep. 29th, Heavy Montreal, and August 17th, Little Current, Ontario. Is there anything else in there? Oh, yeah. We, we go out, we do Red Deer. As soon as I get back, I'm going to Halifax to do swearing at and to uh, hang out with Rob Wells for a day. And then uh, when I get back, I immediately turn around, drive up to Montreal. We play on the Sunday, drive back on the Monday. Thursday, we fly to Winnipeg, drive to Brandon, play the next day in uh, 
Mendoza the next day, uh, drive back to Winnipeg, fly home. Uh, the next weekend we might be in the uh, Saskatchewan. We don't know yet. We're going to find out in the next couple of days. The weekend after that, we drive up to uh, Sudbury on the Thursday. That's uh, the... Uh, um, is that? That is the 16th of uh, August. 17th, we pay a little current right after the show. We drive back to Sudbury. Next morning, we fly to Edmonton by way of Toronto hmm. on stage uh, two hours later. And then the next weekend, we play the Lethbridge Fair. Woo! That is, uh, that's intense. So it actually leads into my next question, which is, you know, how does the band approach touring these days while juggling, say, your busy lives, your families, and obligations at home? Well, I'm the guy that does everything, but, you know, I own the band. Uh, so, you know, I book the flights and make sure that they're advanced, that everything's set up, and the guys show up, and they get their schedule, they know what time to meet and what time to get to the airport, and that's about it. Um, well, this podcast, uh, I'm trying to pay homage to the guys who have gone before me, and I also want to inspire young musicians to take up the cause to hop in a van and see this country with rock and roll uh, riding shotgun. Uh, what advice would you have for indie bands out there who are wanting to hit the road and cross this country? Well, it's pretty tough and almost impossible to do nowadays. You almost, uh, most bands that I'm finding are surviving or stripping themselves down to a one or two piece act. And then when required, they got a full band. Uh, you know, it's a matter of survival. You can't, the problem is with no circuit, what do you do from Monday to uh, Thursday? Absolutely. Or actually Sunday to Thursday. It used to be that, you know, you'd finish off. We used to run with like this. If you did a Western tour, you'd start off, you drive to North Bay, then North Bay to Sudbury, then Sudbury to Sault Ste. Marie, then Sault Ste. Marie to Thunder Bay, then Thunder Bay to Winnipeg, then, then Winnipeg to you know, me and so on and so forth across the country, and then you work your way back. Nowadays, you can't do that. It's like you finish off in North Bay, if you happen to get a date in North Bay, North Bay I don't even think there is a place up there. But, um, you know, you got one night, or Friday or Saturday, then you got a week where you can do nothing. Well, how do you pay your guys? Yeah. Where do you stay? How do you pay for your gasoline? How do you pay for your vehicles? Yeah. That's what I've been, I've been talking about this now for 10 years. Where are young musicians going to learn their craft? There is no place. That's why you got electronic music and music that's, you know, written in basements. Yep. It's, you know, like I said, it's, it's, I've got a love-hate relationship with the inter internet right now. I mean, I, it gives me the ability to do this. However, uh, with so many different genres out there, it's, it's made music disposable. Here today gone later today and they only care about the last song bite on to the next one there's no grooming talent so i'm not surprised that live venues seem to be dwindling and less and less people are actually going out there and hitting the road but i mean all we can do is continue to inspire young bands to to take up the cause and if there's enough bands that are doing it and there's enough demand for it well you know with the will is a way um but uh, my point is still this, and this is why he always continues to get higher nowadays, because bands, because they're not playing, because they're not honing their craft, um, you know, they don't know how to perform. They don't know how to do harmonies. They don't know how to put together a set. And suddenly you get a record deal, and they're thrust in the limelight, and they got to learn all that the drop of a hat. You know, a very tough road to hoe. Um, 
I don't know what the answer is to that. I guess uh, less live talent. Hmm. <laughs> there is no answer. But like I said, all we can do is continue to try, right? Continue to inspire. It's a good thing for us because people pay good money to see Helix because we went through all that. Absolutely. We put in the times. We went to rock and roll high school, and uh, here we are, the we graduates. So lastly, do you have a favorite road story? And this is like, this is the Game 7 Stanley Cup. It's an inspirational moment. <laughs> moment or not it's a rock and roll moment. Way, way, way back in the early days of the band um we were with dram booking agency out of kitchener ontario and dram used to book all the old rock and roll acts like uh freddie can and del shan and uh jerry lee lewis tina <laughs> turner and uh, the guy that did it was a guy named bill jeffross and there was a guy another guy named brian daly that run the agency anyway we were only together about six months we got chosen to be the uh, <clears throat> band for Del Shannon, the famous Del Shannon. And uh, we didn't even know who Del Shannon were. We were so young and green. Sure. Uh, but Del Shannon, you know, the Beatles backed up Del Shannon. The Rolling Stones backed up Del Shannon. He was friends with uh, the Traveling Wilburys and Tom Petty and all those guys, right? Yep. Anyway, <clears throat> we um, learned all the songs. It took us about six months. We could hardly play in the agency. We'd come out periodically and check to make sure that we'd uh, learned our parts and we were playing the songs properly. So the big moment come for Del Shannon to fly in. Well, I went down to Pearson International to pick him up in my $25 Ford Galaxy with this Bondo red <laughs> fenders and snow tires on in the middle of August. And I picked up Del B. Del Shannon and... Um, I, I was as I was driving him back in the 401, he, he uh, begged me to slow down, and he offered me to buy me a steak dinner if I slowed down. I was driving about 85 miles an hour, and so I slowed down, and we bought a steak dinner. When we got to the Coronet, which was where we were playing in Kitchener up in Victoria Street, and um, Del Shannon walked uh, into the room where the band was practicing. It was called the Crown Room at the Coronet. And um, he started changing the keys to songs, and we were just freaked out because we took us six months to learn these songs. Suddenly, he's changing them all around, and we got to play that night. So um, we go back up to the rooms. Well, Brent Derner, who was in the band, he was a doctor for many, many years. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Yep, sure. Well, when Brent first joined the band, he was a real little punk, a little <laughs> criminal. And uh, we had convinced Brent to quit smoking cigarettes. So instead of smoking cigarettes, he used to smoke hash oil. He <laughs> smoked so much hash oil, they used to carry around a vial and a, uh, <clears throat> a, a, um, a blowtorch so he could do hot knives. And uh, Del Shannon walked into the room, and um, Brent was doing hot knives. And he said, what are you doing? And Brent goes, well... We're, we're, we're doing hot knives, we're smoking his hash oil. So Del Shannon goes, let me try it. Oh, no. So he goes and he does about 20 knife tokes. Well, we had to go on stage in about two hours. We walk on stage that night, we're playing, and Del Shannon walks out, and he walked right off the end of the stage. He fell in the audience, he wiped out the table. <laughs> and for the next two weeks, it was just uh, crazy. This with Del Shannon. <laughs> but... Um, he was an amazing guitarist and a nice guy too, but he had uh, he had a drinking problem and eventually he um, uh, um, ended up committing suicide. He was supposed uh. to replace 
uh, Roy Orbison in the Traveling Wilburys. A lot of people don't realize that, but uh, he was very close friends with Tom Petty and George Harrison. And uh, he was the guy that was supposed to replace uh, Orbison, but uh, they never got that far. Oh. Anyway, that's my story about Del Shan. Inspirational, for sure. <laughs> and I should get going. I appreciate your time. Brian, thank you so much. It's truly a pleasure to speak with you. It's not every day that I get to speak yeah, to a pioneer of heavy music. Like I tell people, after about 20 minutes, I get boring as fuck. <laughs> I appreciate your time, Brian. Thank you so much. Continue to stack, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. This concludes the Highway 1 podcast for this week. I want to thank Brian Vollmer of Helix for his time and his stories. He didn't have to give his time, but he did, because that's the kind of guy he is, and that's the kind of band Helix is. I'm your host, Jeff Elliott, production provided by Dave Beeson, the most infectious intro in podcast history provided by Dave Viva of The Mercy Now. Until next time, thanks for listening.